Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 29th, 2021, a couple of days, only a couple of days left in this year. Um, we're looking back at the year. It's hard not to conclude that even though Donald J. Trump wasn't president in 2021 or for most of 2021, he is in many ways dominates the news, the past, the present, and indeed the future. Just looking at the headlines today, New York Times, obsessed with Donald J. Trump. Apparently the January 6th committee has now shelved requests for hundreds of Trump records. Um, the Washington Post, again, obsessed with Trump, has an opinion piece which suggests that the idolatry of Trump, uh, that word's an interesting word, has undermined religious faith. In other words, Donald J. Trump is so bad that he's killing religion. Um, the Hill is running a piece today about the 10 Republicans most likely to run for president. And of course, number one is our old friend, Donald J. Trump, who apparently is going to run again, although no one quite knows. Um, one person who knows a lot about politics has been on the show before, Julian Azeliza. He's a CNN contributor. He's a big time player on Twitter. He has a quarter of a million followers. I uh, came on the show, I think it was early in 2021, or it might have been late 2020, uh, talking about how Newt Gringrich and his band of grifters had made politics into entertainment. We could, of course, replace Gingrich with Trump. Um, his book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of a New Republican Party, is an acclaimed book. Julian Zelizer teaches at Princeton on top of all his media stuff. And he's the editor of a really interesting new collection about you-know-who, the presidency of Donald J. Trump, a first historical assessment. Uh, uh, Julian uh, contributes uh, an introduction to it, and it's a book by historians of Trump's legacy. And I'm thrilled that Julian uh, is joining us from Sag Harbor, New York. Uh, Julian, why the obsession with Trump? Why are we all, including myself, so obsessed with this guy? Well, I mean, first, he was the president of the United States, and I think uh, all presidencies in one way or another are fascinating. He was a disruptive president who did not only controversial things, but things that really destabilized norms of governing that we were used to. So it was hard uh, not to ignore what he said or or what he did. And I think, look, uh, in his presidency, there were many dramatic things that happened that shook many people in the nation, culminating with this massive pandemic. So it's hard to simply end uh, an insurrection uh, as Congress was certified. Although, to be vote. fair to uh, Donald J. Trump, I mean, he may he may seem like the devil or the god to many, but he didn't actually cause COVID. Uh, I like the title of your piece, the introduction to the book. Um, it's entitled the most predictable unconventional presidency. So are you saying, Julian, that the um, unconventionality of Trump was also by definition predictable and the more unconventional he became, the more predictable he was? 
Well, there were two points. One is that a lot of what happened during his presidency from positions on immigration to the way social media just exploded as a norm of communication, these were things in the making uh, before he took office. He took a deep dive into some of these positions and some of these methods, but the authors try to show they didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't all just start in 2017. So that's what historians do. Uh, thus the title. Uh, and when he did the most unconventional uh, things, we try to root this in basic elements of politics that had been brewing for at least a decade or so. Uh, and so that's uh, where that title comes from. Uh, you begin your piece with an account of a, a Zoom call you did with <laughs> Trump to analyze um, his historical legacy. And he was actually fairly friendly, wanted a good historical legacy. You're a historian, Julian, teaching at Princeton. Do we have enough time? Do we have distance? We have that old famous Chinese cliche. I think it was Chow En Lai. Someone asked him about the French Revolution, or I don't know if it was the Chinese or the French Revolution, and said, uh, what do you think of it? And he said, well, too early to tell. Isn't it a bit too early to tell on Trump? Have historians, uh, do historians have the, uh, the, the, the temporal perspective to really take account, to take a take on, uh, on Trump himself? They do. I think uh, thinking of this as there's a moment when this is the right time to start taking on the question is the wrong way to think about it. It's really an ongoing conversation. And what historians who live through the moment have that historians won't have 60, 70 years from now and more is a real feel for the moment, for the culture, for the players of the period. And so this book, as I've done with some other presidents, is an effort just to start the conversation, to start looking at the big questions of these four years and to start putting this in some kind of context. It's not an end. Uh, and there is never a moment, frankly, when we settle on the legacy of a president. And uh, that's the premise of the book. Another of the premises which you talk about in the introduction is the device, divided nature of America. In terms of selecting presidents, uh, sorry, excuse me, not presidents, in terms of selecting the contributors to this edition, um, you have some very distinguished historians, uh, and I want you to talk about some of them um, later in this conversation. But did you make an attempt for political balance? Did you make an attempt to have both sides of uh, the left-right division in America represented in terms of figuring out Trump's legacy? I didn't really think of it that way, and I haven't with Bush or Obama. I was just interested in finding smart historians and historians who have the most sophisticated understanding of the issues that mattered uh, during this presidency. So rather than looking for a conservative or liberal historian to write about immigration, I just wanted the nation's best historian on immigration to put the last four years in some kind of, of long-term context. And so um, that's really how I tackle this. And uh, in the end, uh, you know, readers can do what they want with that. But I think the authors actually provide a pretty serious and rigorous analysis of this presidency as opposed to a behind-the-scenes, scandal-ridden kind of account. And that's really what I was hoping for. You mentioned, uh, Julian, that you done similar books on the Obama and Bush presidencies. How is the challenge of doing a book on Trump's legacy different from the Obama and Bush legacies? We've done lots of shows about 
Bush and, and um, both Bushes, in fact, and of course, Obama. Uh, two ways. And the one way it's not different is the feelings in the room, so to speak, meaning there were very strong feelings about the last four years. But this was actually true with both Obama and with Bush. The, the two challenges are one, since on the surface, President Trump, the former president, was so unconventional and did things that just didn't fit our understanding of the uh, presidency, it was more of a challenge for historians to kind of give a serious analytical understanding uh, of what just took place. And, and the second is, A, you know, he's, he still might run again. So this very much is in progress. And as you said a few minutes ago, he actually contacted us to talk to us about what he had done, which the other two presidents didn't do. So that really threw this in a very different light. We've had lots of shows, um, Julian, as you know, about Trump as a, as a reality television show figure and president. You write about this in your uh, intro. Um, you talk about Mark Burnett, who essentially invented um, reality television, suggesting that uh, um, uh, he, Trump himself, was a figure who came out of The Apprentice, out of reality television. Do you see Trump's legacy as making reality television mainstream in political life, one of his legacies? I think there's something to that. Uh, it was already taking shape before he became president, but he obviously came right out of that world. Most people knew him not really as a real estate mogul pre-TV. Those living in New York did know him that way. But they knew him as the star of The Apprentice. He even ran his presidency in many ways to capitalize on those techniques, to make it a show. He always had an eye toward television. He always had an eye toward social media. And I'm not sure that will ever go away. Uh, President Biden might do less of that. But I think that template is going to be part of our politics forevermore. And so, yes, I do think that is a a legacy, as is the use of social media and the way in which he communicated with people in a, in a somewhat unscripted, uh, unconstructed manner. I don't think that will disappear either. Julian, do political analysts like yourself even have the language to make sense of Trump? You have one great uh, quote um, uh, in your intro. Uh, you say, Trump dodged scandal after scandal. He made Teflon seem sticky. Of course, the metaphor of the Teflon presidency has been used to describe previous presidents, I think, uh, Clinton. Um, do we have the language to make sense of a Donald J. Trump? We, we meaning political historians and analysts? I think we do. I mean, the, I wrote an essay in the book, and it really focuses on the evolution of the Republican Party. And it looks over really a 30, 40 year period, uh, starting with people like Newt Gingrich and going through the Tea Party, how the Republican Party radicalized, how many traditional norms started to disappear, how the party really took a deep dive into challenging all the basic conventions of American politics, including uh, the willingness to use falsehood with uh, reckless abandon often. And so I think if you tell the story of the Republican Party, while there's many unconventional or unique parts of the Trump presidency, a lot of it uh, is familiar. A lot of the things we talked about with the Tea Party in Congress during Obama's presidency 
are the same things we talk about when we look back at the Trump presidency. So I do think uh, there's a way to talk about this in familiar terms and to make sense of what he was doing, whether or not one likes what he did. I suspect when historians look back on a longer term perspective, Julian, that one of the things that they're going to suggest is that whilst we, and again, we collectively, the intelligentsia, historians, media commentators, were obsessed with Trump, we missed what was happening in the Democratic Party. By, by suggesting that what's happening in the Republicans is somehow not normal, exceptional, um, are we missing the same crisis that's affecting the left progressives one way or the other in America? I think it's different. I, I do think uh, the Democratic Party still by and large is a, a party shaped by different coalitions where there's more divisions that are at play as opposed to the Republican Party. And I think the Republican Party as a whole has radicalized, including the leadership in terms of what it's willing to do. But so it should. I mean, America has changed. We had, um, yeah. we, you know, we had uh, uh, Fiona Hill on the show recently. You know, mm -hmm. Fiona, of course, yeah. talking about how America is becoming like Russia. It's not surprising, given the socioeconomic changes, the, the, the earthquake that's happened in a post-industrial America, that the political parties would change too, isn't it? No, absolutely. But I still don't think the Democrats have changed quite as much. A lot of the Democratic Party, look at the leadership, President Biden, Chuck Schumer. Uh, right, but that isn't that, that, that's my point. We did yeah. a show with Evan Osnos, I'm sure you, and I'm yeah. sure you know him, about Joe Biden. Isn't Joe Biden in a way more interesting than Trump because he hasn't changed at all, because he's such a, a gerontocratic president on so many different levels? Yeah. I mean, that's a tale of two parties. It's not just a tale of the contrast with the presidents. And it's almost what we would expect. That said, within the Democratic Party, there are certainly changes taking place, uh, generational in terms of ideology that are starting to show, even with someone like Biden embracing positions um, that wouldn't have been mainstream Democratic politics a decade ago. We have an author, Michael Kazin, who's a historian at Georgetown, who has a whole chapter on the party and tries to capture some of this and, and how the progressives basically made amends with someone like Biden as being the best candidate and how that all came together. So he really addresses this directly, I think, in a, in a smart way. I, I want to have a break in a second, um, uh, Julian, and then come back to some mm -hmm. of the other essays in, in, in the piece. But um, you write in your introduction um, about the crisis of what you call his, what historians call the New Deal order. Is Trump, do you think, a cause or an effect of that? I'm sure he's both, really. He's an effect of a multi-decade effort to dismantle many of the policies and many of the ideas that shaped American politics from the 1930s to the 1970s. And we see a lot of this start uh, with the Reagan presidency between 1981 and 1989. And I think he's part of that trajectory. And if you look at a lot of the policies from the Trump administration, whether it's climate change or whether it's tax policy, you can see this ongoing effort to undercut what presidents from Franklin Roosevelt to Lyndon Johnson tried to accomplish. And so in that way, uh, he's an effect. He's not just a cause, though in many ways, areas, he accelerated uh, this, this effort to do that. 
I am talking with the distinguished historian um, Julian E. Zelizer, the uh, editor of a wonderful new collection of uh, essays by historians, The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, A First Historical Assessment. He's done similar books. He's edited similar books on Obama and Bush. Um, and Julian, when we come back after uh, a short break, I want to talk more specifically about some of the other essays in the book. I want you to talk about which essays you think are particularly relevant and I want to get some of these other contributors actually on the show. So stay tight, everyone. We'll see you in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We are ubiquitous, but not quite as ubiquitous as you know who, Donald J. Trump. We have Julian E. Zelizer, the uh, editor of the a new book, The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, on the show, talking about a first historical legacy of you-know-who. Uh, Julian, uh, the first half of the show, we talked about your take on this. You you write um, a, a pithy, um, interesting uh, introduction. Uh, there are many essays in the book. We can't talk about all of them. Uh, I think you've got about, what, about 16 different essays, actually 18 by distinguished historians. Perhaps you might talk about two or three of them that you think are particularly relevant and interesting? Sure. We have one that I think will get some attention uh, by Geraldo Cadova, uh, Jerry Cadova, who wrote a book about, uh, essay about Latinos in Trump and tries to explain uh, why the support uh, expanded by 2020 uh, with many Latino voters. And he tries to uh, kind of show changes that have been taking place uh, within the Latino community and some support that existed for many of the positions that the Trump presidency 
ultimately embraced. Uh, so that's a very interesting one. Kianga Yamada Isn't Taylor. Isn't this rather is like, uh, and I, I don't want to bring up Hitler yeah. and the Jews, but I'm going to. Isn't that rather like the Jews voting for Hitler or is that rather vulgar? No, I th he doesn't. He wouldn't. I don't think he would accept that. So how would the, he argue it? Why, why uh, given all his racist remarks about uh, Hispanic people, about immigration, why are they attracted to Trump? Well, part of what he shows is as you've had uh, people settling uh, over some time, they developed hostility toward newcomers, uh, as happened with Eastern European and German immigrants early in the 20th century. Uh, and those were the kinds of divisions that uh, Trump capitalized on when going against newcomers uh, who he would categorize as illegal immigrants. We'll have, so, to, get, um, we'll have to get that historian yeah. on the show. Julian, um, do you have any essays on the international context of Trump? After yeah. all, we have Orban and Putin and Erdogan and Duterte and Bolsonaro. Do you have anyone sort of positioning Trump within this context of international neo-authoritarianism? Well, Jeff Engel, Jeffrey Engel, who's a historian uh, at SMU, he wrote one about the fraying of international relations and how the Trump administration ultimately uh, was more uh, in connection with those regimes that you were talking about rather than some of the traditional alliances, which had already been weakening. Uh, but Trump really separated himself in many ways from organizations such as NATO. We have another great one, a little different than what you're talking about, by James Mann, uh, who wrote about U.S.-China relations and tries to show that these years, the Trump presidency, were the end point of a process that started in 1972 when the U.S. and China started a period of engagement, and that engagement has deteriorated since the 1990s as China rose as a pretty significant economic power. And uh, so Mann tackles a, a different question, but equally uh, important. Uh, Julian, we mentioned January 6th at the beginning here. Of course, January 6th is uh, unavoidable for better or worse. Uh, we had um, David Rothkoff on the show recently, written a book called Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. Do you have any historians who view Trump as a traitor and somehow position this in terms of historical legacy, well, I don't particularly think in the context of January 6th? No one calls him a traitor in the book, but they do talk about January 6th as a pretty, uh, a very serious moment in American politics. Margaret O'Mara, who wrote a chapter on high tech in the yeah, competition. Yeah, Margaret's been on the show. We'll have to get her to talk him. What did Margaret say? Well, she talked, I mean, part of her chapter is about uh, the kind of uh, the tensions, obviously, with the Trump administration and social media from antitrust to ultimately him being kicked off of Twitter. But it's also about how important social media was, including on that January 6th moment when so much of the insurrection is actually taking place, being broadcast on social media. Beverly Gage, who's another very good historian and wrote about law enforcement and Trump's relationship with law enforcement, uh, looks at the breakdown that's taking place and puts January 6th uh, in that context. So we have, and, and several other historians talk about it as well. We have a chapter on impeachment by Gregory Downs, for example, uh, and the second impeachment is is all about that and what, just how serious of, that threat of, of was. That impeachment has has uh, did Trump succeed in making 
turning impeachment, perhaps to borrow some language from Marx, yeah. turning it from tragedy into farce? I think there's an argument uh, to be made. I mean, Downs talks about that, that ultimately having two impeachments and many ways no accountability raises questions that continue. Is this mechanism valuable at all? Uh, and has uh, the former president exposed that ultimately partisanship uh, is enough to protect the president regardless of, of what they do? And I think that is an important legacy, not just for impeachment, but just for accountability in American politics altogether. What about Schumer, Julian? Um, Sarah Cooper. We have an image of Sarah Cooper and Donald Trump and, and his parents. Um, Sarah Cooper made a name for herself in the Trump presidency. Did Trump change political humor, do you think? Did he change political and, and humor? Did, 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 do any of your contributors write about that? We don't have any uh, on humor. And um, it's a good question. I mean, he is one of these presidencies where the uh, industry of humor, uh, from Saturday Night Live to other kinds of online figures, become part of what's called the resistance or become part of the way opposition built to this presidency. And while we don't have that, I think that's a great uh, question to tackle and a great issue to look like to look at over over time. Uh, Julian, you ask at the end of your essay about the healthiness of US democratic institutions. Do any of your contributors focus on this about the lasting legacy of Trump's destruction of not just democratic norms, but institutions? I think almost uh, not all of them, but almost all of the essays are uh, wrestling with that question. And I think many authors uh, are pretty much in agreement that there's been a very significant erosion uh, of the strength of our democratic institutions and norms. And as we said, with impeachment, the former president exposed how much those can continue to be pushed from voting rights to uh, January 6th without any kind of consequence. So I think many of these historians who are looking at the big picture feel that the moment is very uh, unsettling and, and dangerous to some extent, uh, not simply in terms of the president who inhabited the office, but where our democratic institutions were by the end of his term. How, how do the contributors or some of your contributors view Trump in terms of the consciousness his consciousness of undermining these norms. In your introduction, you suggest that Trump perhaps isn't always as conscious of, of how he's behaving as he might. Um, do you have historians who suggest that this is essentially a, a Trumpian conspiracy to destroy American democracy? Not a conspiracy, and, and not all the authors agree on everything. Uh, I do think Good. the authors... Yeah, Where's I mean, the biggest uh, well, finish that and then perhaps we might talk a little bit about how they disagree, because I think that's healthy as well. I mean, I do think uh, there is a certain amount of intentionality. I don't think it's uh, authors saying that uh, Donald Trump set out on day one of his presidency to destroy democratic institutions. And that's how he ended his presidency. But he was aware and exploited weaknesses that were quite obvious. So. For example, he understood that in the modern media world, we have Nicole Hammer writes about this, this new conservative social media, cable media offered huge opportunities to say what one wanted for a president to make things up and for that information simply to float through our ecosystem very quickly. That 
uh, in terms of the strength of the truth and the strength of facts uh, is a key part of our democracy. And uh, several of the authors say he understood exactly what he was doing, and he exploited those vulnerabilities uh, very well. He did the same with his attacks on the election and his attacks on uh, voting rights. How analytical he was, I don't know, but I think the authors think there was a systematic effort on all those fronts by the former president and his advisors. Julian, yesterday we did a show on trauma. And uh, of course, um, uh, Mary L. Trump wrote the book Too Much and Never Enough, which attempts to interpret Trump in terms of the trauma of his adolescence and his relationship with his family, very different from de Tocqueville's view of democracy in America. Uh, do any of your authors do a psychoanalytical, a psychological analysis of Trump as the first president of our age of trauma? It's a, that's not the kind of essays um, that that they wrote. So uh, it's different than some of those accounts. And and I mean, people do a few of the authors think a bit about who he is in terms of his background and and how that might have affected his presidency. I certainly do that uh, in, in both my introduction and essay. But ultimately, uh, I think the essays try to step out of that framework uh, and, and are almost understanding what surrounded this person, meaning the president, to really make sense of it rather than psychohistory. We're in the age of trauma, also in the age of Black Lives Matter. I know that several of your essays focused on Trump and race, yeah. uh, thinking of him in terms of perhaps the new racism in the party or an old new racism, as well as its impact on uh, people of color, particularly African-Americans. Perhaps, uh, uh, Julian, you can talk a little bit about the contributors on, on that front. I know you have several in the, in the collection. For sure. So uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor uh, wrote a really uh, superb piece on on the erosion uh, of of civil rights and the ideal of civil rights, particularly when dealing with class, with institutional racism that had been taking place in both parties before the Trump presidency started. And so she tries to make sense of some of the challenges Black Lives Matter faced as it took form. Uh, in that context. So her essay is uh, quite good. Kathleen Ballou wrote a whole uh, piece on uh, white supremacy and, and the rise of these organizations that we've seen since the 1990s that gained a certain amount of new legitimacy during the Trump presidency because the president was willing to uh, court groups like the Proud Boys. And May Nye uh, writes about nativism and how nativism had taken such a hold on the Republican Party since the 1990s and how a lot of what the former president said about immigrants and the rhetoric he deployed and the strength that found in the Republican Party uh, have been part of a long-term secular change in a party that was once pretty liberal on immigration policies. So those are three essays uh, that deal with issues of, of race and ethnicity. Well, we definitely have to have one or two of those people on the show. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier, Julian, that there was some disagreement about uh, among some of the historians on, on, on Trump's legacy. Where were those most pronounced, the disagreements? Well, the one big one which has floated over our conversation is how much was this about Trump and how much uh, was this about American politics more broadly? And there were some authors 
who really were more invested in seeing the particularity of Trump uh, on many of the unconventional things that we've seen. Uh, and others disagreed and said, well, we've seen elements of this in the making for a while and, and we shouldn't be so heavy in, in making this a Trump-centered analysis uh, of what was going on. There was one great, when we had a conference about this, it was on Zoom because of the pandemic, when everyone provided their draft, there was uh, one author discussing the foreign policy pieces who couldn't believe the language that historians were using to describe a president in terms of how they viewed the world and how they viewed allies. And it wasn't disagreeing with what was written. It was just this moment where they were stepping back, a historian, and saying, I can't believe this, this just happened. And we had a debate of how do you write about that? How do you develop a language as a, a writer uh, to describe this uh, in ways that, that make sense? So uh, those were two of the divisions. And where do you stand, Julian, on that? Do I'm you more, think we should focus on America or Trump, most of all? I'm more, you know, he's a, a product, not a cause. And uh, I think there's more than enough books uh, that are coming out already from former advisors and from journalists that, that focus all on Trump. And, and they're very good. Uh, but I think really what historians bring to the table is the other part of the question. And if we don't talk about how this was situated in American politics, I believe we miss the story. I believe we see this as a one-off and we don't understand the root causes, not of what Trump did, but of how did his presidency take place? How did it have such a foundation in so many elements of American politics? Yeah, the nightmare for many of us, including myself, is that uh, Donald Trump is re-elected president in 2024. And that nightmare must be d doubly creepy for you Julian, because not only uh, I'm guessing you're not a big fan of Donald J. Trump, but then you'd have to do another book about him. Um, I'm willing to do that. And uh, if we have to put a new edition of this, that will be uh, just fine. Um, but well, you're selfless. You're dedicated to these books on the presidency. Your new book, which you edited, um, The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, a, f a First Historical Assessment, is... Um, uh, contributed to uh, many of the contributors are leading historians of America. And uh, Julian is both the editor and has his own piece. Uh, you're talking to me from Sag Harbor in these uh, dying days of 2021, Julian. Um, we had a show with the Washington Post book reviewer, Carlos Lozada. Uh, what were we thinking? A brief intellectual history of the Trump era, which looked at all the different books about Trump. Is there a particular book about one book on Trump that you think somehow captures the uniqueness of his presidency? Is there one that's your favorite? I know that's a hard question. I don't. I, I mean, not to be honest, not yet. I've, I've read most of the initial ones that came out. Are any out of them of... any good? Will any of them last? I mean, you mentioned Michael Wolff. I'm guessing his books won't last, although he made a fortune with them. Uh, are there any books that you think somehow captured the spirit in both a short and a long-term context? There's one that's a little different than what you're saying, but it actually is quite good. One of our contributors, Michael Kazin, has a book coming out about the history of the Democratic Party. And the last part of that book, it's the history of the whole party, I actually thought was quite good, not in focusing on Trump, but in focusing on party politics uh, and, and what's been going on uh, during that period 
Um, so, so that's a good one for a different kind of perspective uh, on, on what's happening. I'm sure, look, I, I assume there'll be books that come out, um, not just about some of, <laughs> not just about the chaos, but about issues like the pandemic. And yeah. when we start to get first cuts of what happened and what went wrong in terms of the policy response, I think those will be quite important as well. Well, we haven't even mentioned the pandemic. Maybe that's the source of another conversation. I am talking with Julian E. Zelizer, the uh, editor and contributor to the presidency of Donald J. Trump, a first historical uh, analysis. Everybody knows Julian also as a CNN contributor. I want to wish you a very happy new year, Julian. Um, any Anything else that people should be reading as 2021 ends and hopefully 2022 will be a better year in terms at least of COVID? Well, it's not an optimistic book, but it's a great novel I just read. It's called Our Country Friends um, by Gary Steingart. Of the uh, New you're York. the second guy. I'm going to have to ban that book because it's like Camus Plague. Everyone it's now really is suggesting good. it. Uh, it's a good book. And I think everyone, uh, even if those were not the circumstances you lived through the pandemic, he captures many elements of the daily part of this. Uh, so I would urge that I, I just finished it. So uh, that's that's yeah, the one. Well, Gary, in the, uh, Gary was on the show several yeah. years ago when this was on TechCrunch. I wanted to get him back. Well, Julian, real honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Uh, congratulations again on this new book, um, The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, a first historical assessment. We're going to follow up and get some of the other contributors on. Happy, healthy new year. And uh, one thing I think is for sure in 2022, we will have Julian E. Zelizer back on the show to talk about Biden, Trump, and the future of American politics and democracy. Thank you so much, Julian. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it.